Welcome back to the show, guys. Today, we are here with Tyler Tringas. Tyler is the founder and general partner at ComFund. So ComFund is an interesting concept. They're basically an innovation on the venture fund model, except they have adapted it to fund what would otherwise be bootstrapped software companies. So Tyler himself was a founder. He started a company called Stormapper. He ended up selling it. And then he realized there were a lot of other entrepreneurs who either are looking to start software companies or have already started software companies that want some financing, but not necessarily venture capital. Because venture capital is fundamentally a vehicle designed for companies that are looking to scale to valuations in the billions of dollars. And Tyler realized that there was an opportunity to design something new, a new structure. And that's basically what ComFund is. They also have a community, they have a summit, they have mentorship, they have all kinds of resources that are designed for entrepreneurs in that category. I love when people innovate on the venture capital model by adapting it to different kinds of businesses or by, you know, making adjustments to the way it works and how it can serve founders. So I really appreciate everything Tyler has done over the past few years. And I also really got a lot out of this conversation because what I love most about talking to Tyler is he not only thinks about it as a sort of individual solution to individual problems, but he really looks at the aggregate sort of societal shifts and the economic implications in a way that I find really compelling. So we go into a lot of that in this conversation. We talk about his story, how he started his career, how he ended up starting Stormapper and sold it. And then from there, how he ended up having the inspiration to start ComFund. Now, before we dive into the episode, I do want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Livecom. Consumers want to see videos of real people using your products before they buy. And the best tool for that is Livecom. It's a plug and play tool that lets you add shoppable videos to your Shopify store so that you can make your products come to life through shoppable UGC, product and PDP videos, how-tos, sizing explainers, and everything in between. And it's all done with one click, no code embeds, meaning anyone can do it. In my opinion, what Livecom has built is one of the easiest ways to increase your conversion rates on your Shopify store. So if you want to learn more, go to livecom.com forward slash dolma. That's L-Y-V-E-C-O-M dot com forward slash dolma, and they will hook you up with 20% off and a one month free trial. Without further ado, let's get into the conversation with Tyler Tringus. We are here today with Tyler Tringus of Calm. Tyler is somebody that I recently realized I was indirectly connected to because his fund and community, they help bootstrappers and also founders who want to opt out of the venture path. And I was actually one of the members of one of his masterminds a few years ago. So we're coming back full circle, Tyler. It's really nice to finally directly connect with you. And I'm so excited to have you here. Yeah, it's fantastic to chat. So why don't you give us an introduction of yourself and how you got to where you are today? Sure. Yeah. So right now I'm the founder and general partner of Calm Company Fund. We're a fund, right? So in many ways, we're going to look and act and have this a similar sort of business model to venture funds and other kinds of funds that invest in entrepreneurs. So we raise capital from folks who, who want to invest in entrepreneurs. We find entrepreneurs at the very early stage. We write them a check and then we give them a lot of additional support in the form of mentorship, community, resources, all that sort of stuff. So a lot of the things you traditionally associate with investing in startups. But the big twist is that we have a very different lens on how to invest and how to build companies that, like you said, it kind of aligns a bit more with a, a bootstrapper type of mentality. We actually originally like the tagline for our, our first fund was funding for bootstrappers. It's kind of this oxymoron that, you know, kind of sparks some conversations. 
But that's the gist is we're trying to back calm companies that are focused on being profitable, growing sustainably, you know, a very different approach to building a company. So that's what I do now. I've been doing that for about four years. Kind of a crazy background I could talk about a little bit, but um, yeah, that's the main thing. Yeah. Well, tell us about StoreMapper. Tell us about how you started that. And I love the story of you sort of just packing it together on a plane ride from Buenos Aires when it sounded like it was kind of a side hustle or a side project that you weren't really planning to, you know, turn into what it became. But tell us about that and how that led you eventually to the thesis behind Kong. Sure. Yeah. In many ways, the fund now is like a scratch your own itch project for me 10 years ago. It's it's the kind of partner that I wish I had had in a prior phase of life. So yeah, so I guess about a little less than 10 years ago, I had tried and basically failed to start a venture backed startup. It's kind of a, a long story that we can go into. But the gist of it is that, you know, I didn't really understand that there was a whole category of great business ideas in software that were not a fit for traditional venture capital, right? It was a, a sort of niche software product in the emerging industry industry of, of residential solar, right? So switching your, your home to solar energy. At that point, this is maybe 15 years ago, it was a really niche market, right? So when we were pitching VCs, they were like, how is this going to be a billion dollar company? And right, that was kind of like, what's well, probably not, it's not that big of an industry, right? But you know, we're building this company and it's got software and we could really use like something south of a million dollars to really get it off the ground. And that kind of I really ran into the brick wall there where I was like, okay, wow, there's really not a lot of investor support for businesses that can't raise kind of small business debt and aren't necessarily the kind of, you know, moonshot type of approach that you need to work with VCs. So I basically found myself in the world of bootstrapping software businesses almost by necessity, right? I just said, hey, you know, I'm not going to ask or wait around and ask for anyone's permission to start my next company. I'm just going to explore and iterate on ideas, but I'm only going to look at stuff that I can start myself without any outside capital. So that was the kind of mindset that I was in. I had taught myself to code. I was freelancing and I was kind of using the freelancing also as a discovery mechanism to see what kinds of things just people in the market would, would like. And one of the things that I hit on, I was doing some freelance work for Shopify merchants. So I was building kind of front end, back end, just like customizations to their shop, essentially. And I had several folks ask me for a store locator, right? So a lot of these merchants were, they were D to C native, right? So they had gone directly from like Shark Tank or Kickstarter, and now they were selling on their Shopify store. And now they just started to get distribution in a handful of places, right? And they'd be like, we're in Whole Foods in New England. And this, you know, smattering of health food shops in California and Nevada. And so you needed this store locator to tell people where to buy your product in the real world. And I had a, a couple of clients ask me to build that for them. And I kind of just hit on, hey, well, this seems like a little bit more of a generalizable thing. And, you know, it's going to cost you thousands of dollars for me to build you something from scratch. Would you would you pay like $100 a month for a productized version of this? And I got a couple of yeses right away. So I was just in that mentality of shipping things as fast as possible. So I, I decided to basically MVP, right, minimum viable product, like build this thing as fast as I possibly could. And I ended up building the entire first version of this productized version of this on a single flight. I was going down to Argentina. So I was flying from San Francisco to Buenos Aires via JFK. I booked this this flight with Miles. So it was like very indirect, but it was first class the whole way. So I had like a nice comfy space, you know? <laughs> and uh, and I just like, 
right up my laptop, drank too much coffee and, uh, and built the first version of a product, shipped it and had paying customers like within 48 hours of writing the first line of code sort of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. so would you say the hack to building and shipping fast is to hop on a plane to a different continent, caffeinate yourself and see how much you can get done? Absolutely. That's actually the title of my upcoming book, which is exactly how to build your minimum viable product on a plane to Argentina. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone should do it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fascinated by the process that was involved in defining the financial structure and the fund economics of something like Calm because you're inventing a new asset class. Walk us through what that process was like. What did you do to figure out, all right, how do we need to be different than the traditional sort of fund model and what should we still maintain because you guys have a really interesting sort of financing agreement called a seal so unpack some of that for us and how you arrived at that must have been fairly iterative not instantaneous process totally yeah it was really um it was really kind of a crowdsourced process so well going back to this business that i built right this bootstrap business along the way i started blogging pretty actively about building the process you know kind of along the way and being very transparent with the financials and all that sort of stuff and so i had my own experience of bootstrapping this software business and then i also met a ton of other people who were ahead of me kind of my peers and then a lot of other people that aspired to build these kinds of companies really? and Twitter, by the way. What's that? Were you doing this on Twitter? Yeah, I was pretty active on Twitter. And then I was doing a lot of just blogging on my personal website, which I haven't been super active on lately. But yeah, it was pretty regular, super long form kind of detailed stuff on, you know, really in the moment, right? So, you know, hey, we just crossed $20,000 a month in revenue. Here's what we're doing. Here's what our strategy is. Like in retrospect, I'm not sure if it was the greatest strategic decision, but the real long-term benefit was that I got to meet a ton of interesting entrepreneurs, which has been a compounding benefit for me just personally and, and definitely uh, for launching the fund. So I got to, to sort of understand both you know, my perspective was I ran this company for about five years. It became kind of a very healthy internet small business, right? So it was a pretty small remote team, became very profitable, was just sort of throwing off a lot of cash. I was able to not quite four hour work week it, but really, you know, wind down how many hours per week I was spending for, for the last kind of two years there. And then I sold it for, you know, a very nice outcome. And so that, that was one trajectory of these kinds of businesses. But I also had the perspective of all these other people I was engaging with through my blog. And you start to see all of these different gradations of success that are very different from the, you know, only exclusively you must build the next Uber or Facebook and anything else is a failure, right? There's this whole kind of spectrum of all these different outcomes from you keep it as just a one person shop and it becomes very profitable or, you know, you run it as a 50 person distributed team, right? And, and maybe eventually you sell it to a strategic partner three or four years down the road or you run it for 20 years and you never sell it, right? I met people doing all this kind of stuff. And so when we were thinking about how to invest in these kinds of companies, we had to work backwards from that whole spectrum of outcomes to say, we don't want to be misaligned with an entrepreneur because they've reached something that they consider success. But because of the way we set up our investment, it's a failure for us. So we basically tried to create a financing structure that was way more flexible than the traditional approaches that you have if you're like an angel investor or, or a VC. And we call this the shared earnings agreement. And the beautiful part about it was the way we launched the fund before we were even ready to do investing or anything, we did a, a draft of the shared earnings agreement and we did both a, a long blog post about it and then an actual open Google Doc with the, the legal version of it. 
and I put it with public comments open and I, I posted this, this blog post with the link to it. And so anybody who you know, could like inline comment directly in the Google Doc, it went like to the top of Hacker News and Indie Hackers and like every possible place it could, you know, kind of go viral within the niche community of these kinds of entrepreneurs. And so we had like hundreds and hundreds of comments from everybody from all kinds of entrepreneurs to legal experts to tax experts all like weighing in on how this could be better. And so it was iterative, but it was like one gigantic iteration all at once. <laughs> like we got so much feedback that we were basically like, okay, good. We integrated the stuff that we thought was good. We did a, a V2 and we just called it a day. And that's a product that we've used for most of our investments since then, which has been about, about 70 investments in the four years since. I love that co-creative process. And it sounds like you've just been generally really strong at building in public. What inspired you to start doing that? Hmm. So I often say that I'm really a one trick pony when it comes to marketing. I'm just very lucky that this one particular trick happens to work for this industry. So in some respects, it's just that I was inspired to do it because I, I'm not very good at any other form. <laughs> so this one keeps working. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of mentality. I was definitely inspired in terms of sharing building in public with my startup by a couple of folks who were sort of pioneering that approach, in particular Buffer, which, you know, they were probably the first people to really truly be kind of radically open. I think the folks at WordPress were open for a while. So there was a little bit of a culture of kind of radical transparency in talking about your startup that, that started to form around the time that I started as well. I was definitely inspired by those folks. And the thing I really liked about it is that there's so much noise when you're an aspiring entrepreneur. There's so many basically get rich quick schemes out there, right? It's actually quite profitable for people to sell you get rich quick schemes, right? You know, it's very hard if you don't actually have that hard won experience to figure out like, okay, what of this is BS and what of this is actually coming from entrepreneurs that either know what they're talking about, or at least I can understand how much they know what they're talking about. And so the radical transparency, I loved it because it let folks calibrate what I was writing about, right? They could see like, okay, this is a guy who's, you know, he's got two employees and he's doing $20,000 a month. He doesn't know how to necessarily scale an enterprise SaaS team, right? So if he wanders into that area, I'll know he's kind of just guessing. But if he talks about something that's relevant to that exact moment, you know, I know that at least this is sort of authentic information, not just somebody trying to like sell me, you know, a, a course or some coaching for something they don't know anything about. So it was kind of cool to be able to write freely knowing that, hey, they have the context here, right? They know exactly how much to sort of trust this or not, right? And I thought that was a, a cool little ecosystem that developed among a bunch of, of entrepreneurs and startups. That's what I love, maybe even the most about entrepreneurship is there's such a pay it forward mentality and you have your different categories, right? You have mm. your sort of like Silicon Valley, I'm building a moonshot, YC people or hackers there. And then you have your more bootstrapped community and, and all kinds of things and more your like internet marketers. But in mm. general, I find that because everybody is just trying to figure out what the hell is going on, they're so willing to help each other out and share learnings as they go. And it sounds like you've been really good at that. I'm curious about the shared earnings, and I'm also curious mm. about the way that you guys have incorporated a founder earnings threshold. So what are founder earnings? What is the threshold? Mm. How should founders think about that? And also the residual equity basis. So some of the sort of specifics of the way you've structured this, I'd love to get into all of that. Sure. Yeah. So the typical way that we invest and in, something that I always caveat is that, you know, at the end of the day, we are a fund that's designed to invest in calm companies. And that's a kind of strategy, right? A, a company can walk through 
and they're a great fit for us, but they have some strong opinions about exactly the way they want to, to raise money. And we're not going to let that be a barrier to us investing in the best comm company. So we have a product that we've created that we think does a really good job of creating alignment. But if there's other opportunities, we'll, we'll take those too. But the shared earnings agreement, as we've kind of primarily designed it, gives us as investors two pieces of upside in a company. The first one is, you know, a traditional kind of equity piece where if they sell the company, we get a percentage of that sale, right? So your standard approach that you expect. But the other piece that's sort of novel is the shared earnings piece, which is if the business becomes substantially profitable. And you see this a lot in the bootstrapper world. You don't see it if you kind of only pay attention to like things that we featured in TechCrunch, right? They're never profitable. You never hear about the founders taking a $2 million each dividend that year, right? Because you're you're trying to maximize growth. You want to reinvest every single dollar as, as quickly and as aggressively as you can. But once you kind of break out of that, you do have a lot of these situations. And like a lot of my friends as entrepreneurs, a lot of our investors are people who run software businesses that they just cut themselves a seven-figure check every single year because the business is very, very profitable. So we want to make sure that if that happens, we're aligned with that or specifically our investors, right? Because ultimately we're raising capital from them. So we have to make sure that they're happy with that outcome. So the idea there is just that we calculate this thing called founder earnings, which is just the money that the founders are putting in their pocket, right? Any mix of salary, dividends, et cetera. And if that goes above a certain threshold, of course, we want them to be able to pay themselves whatever is a sort of reasonable amount without us sort of dipping into that, right? They need to be able to pay their bills and all that sort of stuff. But if they're really taking a lot of money out of the business in a very successful way, we basically participate in that. We get a percentage of that as well. And then there's a sort of incentive for them to do that where they're also kind of buying back their equity a little bit. So if they make a bunch of shared earnings payments to us, right, so we get that profit share piece, then if they later sell the company, our percentage might go down, right? And there's a sort of relationship between the two where we have quite a few companies in our portfolio already that are paying us this quarterly profit share payment. And they're actually pretty stoked to do it because they're sort of rebuying their own equity in their business at a pretty attractive rate. And we're also stoked about it because we're early stage investors and we're already returning cash to to our investors, which is very unusual in the market. A lot of times you do early stage investing, you make that investment and you're waiting like 10, 12, 14 years before you get anything back. And it's really stressful for those investors. So it's kind of a real win-win structure and it's kind of nice. Well, our very first investment is a company called Hostify and the founder, Riley Chase, is on Twitter. He's very active. He recently did a, a super long thread about his experience directly like making these because he was the first one to actually kind of fully repay through shared earnings, the cap on his structure. And so he kind of like went blow by blow about how it all worked. And then the conclusion at the end was like, this was kind of a win-win. Like everyone was sort of happy about it. So, And from the LP perspective, not only did they potentially get paid sooner because the holding period is shorter, but also no. this is my assessment. And I'm curious to hear if it's correct or not. It seems like you're unlocking this whole new potential swath of companies that are somewhere in between you know, bootstrapped small business and moonshot multi-billions of dollars. And a lot of those look like, you know, software companies that are facilitating different kinds of industries that maybe individually are smaller, but in aggregate, all of these businesses are a massive opportunity that venture is just not right for. So all these investors, LPs, are not able to actualize the value of that huge market, basically. Is it an accurate read? 
Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the opportunity that we're going after. And we see it as a just a huge kind of blue ocean of opportunities there. And in many cases, you're really unlocking a layer of entrepreneurship that I think is is sort of held back in the sense that there are lots of opportunities out there. So I was able to bootstrap my business, but it was at a time where I was in my mid 20s. I had no mortgage. I had no kids. You know, I literally like moved to Thailand for a couple of months to keep my costs low. And then I still had like $100,000 in credit card debt right, to bootstrap that business. There are a lot of people with skills, insights into markets, you know, the ability to found a business for whom that is impossible, right? You say they have a mortgage, they have, you know, a spouse and three kids, they need to provide healthcare for all of those, you know, they really do need some amount of capital to be able to take the plunge to jump into entrepreneurship. And we kind of lay this out in our overarching thesis, which is that, you know, I think about what was the entryway into entrepreneurship a generation ago, right? My parents' generation. It was this retail entrepreneurship. This is the age of, you know, starting all like car dealerships and, you know, like local electronic shops and stuff like that. That was how you got into entrepreneurship. And a lot of people made millions and tens of millions of dollars doing that. But the entry point was you basically walked into a bank with a business plan and you said, hey, I'm, I want to start this small business, right? I want to start this donut shop. I want to start this, you know, my, my dad started a guitar shop, right? You go in there and you get a loan, right? Because they can say, hey, they have a process. They can say, okay, there's this real estate. There's all this inventory, blah, 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 blah. We can underwrite against all this and we can just give you this loan and put you in business. Nowadays, so many of the opportunities are these kind of internet native asset light opportunities, right? It's something like building software for, you know, niche car dealerships, or it's building some sort of backend infrastructure for, you know, health food supply chain inventory, right? Like these businesses just look like a couple of people with laptops. So you walk into a bank, you say, hey, I like a loan, you know, a small business loan. And they're like, no way. And then you go talk to VCs and they say, that's too niche. Well, now you're just locked out, right? You just, you just don't do that business potentially ever. And so one of the things I think about a lot is how do we scale this whole thing up in a way that we can unlock so many more entrepreneurs that are just, just don't have that first entry point to get on the path to entrepreneurship. I love that you talk about the personal financial piece of it, because I find that that is not spoken about enough. And I think maybe there's also stigma around it or there might be shame around it. It's hard to share just how difficult it can be. And I've taken on my fair share of financial risk in my 20s. I'm now 30. Now I'm OK. But when I was taking risks and starting different businesses, it was really challenging. And yeah. at the same time, you feel this pressure to project an air of success and it can create this dissonance and that then impacts your mental health. And so that's mm -hmm. a whole on process. But I feel like it's really important that you talk about that because the other thing that I noticed having sort of had one leg in more the bootstrap world and one in Silicon Valley is that a lot of Silicon Valley founders tend to be, and I don't want to overly generalize, but they tend to have the skill sets and the pedigrees to be able to do whatever, even if their thing fails. And so, yeah, mm -hmm. if you have an engineering degree from Stanford, of course, you can afford to fail and then you don't have the mortgage. You don't have the kids, right? To your point. Yeah. And you feel fine with living in a tiny San Francisco apartment with like five other men who don't showers. <laughs> so you're like, I don't know about that. That might be too far for me. But <laughs> I feel like that context of why people feel comfortable taking risks and the differences there are really important to talk about. And we, I think, glorify these really archetypal Silicon Valley entrepreneurs without taking into consideration that their circumstances are different. And because of the entire ecosystem that has emerged to support them, it ends up gatekeeping entrepreneurship. And mm -hmm. that is what you're addressing. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, I be careful. We could go off on this for the entire next hour. This is a real, a real hobby horse for me. But yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I remember when I was trying to raise money for my very first company in clean tech, you know, the amount of times that we were talking to these angel groups and you know, VCs and we talked to everybody. I think I still have a spreadsheet where we we pitched something like 400 plus different people, like funds and individuals and stuff. It was unreal. And probably 150 plus of those said, hey, this is a great idea, but why don't you just go raise a friends and family round trying to raise like $700,000. I was like, are you out of your mind? Like, I don't know if I have any friends or family that have a non-negative network, much less like people who could write me a $100,000 check right now. Like, are you crazy? How out of touch are you with how normal people live? And you know, it's gotten better, but not that much better, really. And, and even also outside of like Silicon Valley, I mean, I think this is more pervasive, right? We just have a real problem where there just aren't enough on-ramps into entrepreneurship. Even if you think about bootstrapping, I sort of did like this informal kind of calculus in my head because I now have sort of behind the scenes friendly relationships with a whole bunch of the sort of semi-famous bootstrapper folks or folks who built successful companies that the people know them as bootstrappers that didn't raise any capital. And I was just kind of tallying it up and it was still a humongous percentage of them I know had some other thing that helped them that wasn't necessarily outside capital, but it was a windfall inheritance or, you know, they were able to stay with their parents who paid all their bills and let them live there for a year while they bootstrap the business, right? A lot of stuff that still a lot of people don't have, right? And it's still in aggregate, like not that much money. We're talking about sort of in the hundreds of thousands of in-kind contributions or actual dollars or whatever. So it's kind of crazy that that amount of, of money becomes this gatekeeper for anyone to sort of enter modern entrepreneurship. It really irritates me that we don't make this more widely available, right? That you have to be extremely lucky to even get a chance to, to start. You guys are addressing this with calm. Outside of that as well, do you see the zeitgeist or the conversations or the trends shifting at all? Or do you feel like it's been kind of more or less the same over the last several years? It's really tricky. You know, the main bottleneck seems to be in the ultimate sources of capital, right? So, I mean, people think we have a fund. I people just think, I don't know, the money just appears out of nowhere, right? And then we're just out here just, able to write checks. And it's in your bank account. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But the reality is like, I'm out there fundraising, right? I'm hustling and talking to all kinds of individuals and organizations trying to raise capital for it. And the vast, vast majority of this capital is sort of, if you think it's hard to raise money from VCs, try raising money from the people that VCs raise money from, right? There's not a lot of innovation. There's not a lot of incentives to innovation, right? There's not a lot of reason to try something new. So we've been at this for four years and we have this incredible strong track record we have, I think, a really robust thesis. We have a great brand. We have like all the check marks and it's still a battle to raise capital for our fund. And so then to really meet this opportunity, we need dozens and dozens of funds doing this. Man, I don't know how it happens, really. <laughs> like, I mean, it's just got to be like brute force, basically. But it is really tough because you'll meet folks who you ask about the zeitgeist. The zeitgeist is changing. But the question is, does the zeitgeist changing convert into action? Does it convert into opportunities for entrepreneurs? And that's been the really tricky part. We'll meet with folks who, you know, manage $4 billion. And they're like, I agree with absolutely everything 
everything you said. I mean, they might be a little more tactful about it, but they're just sitting there nodding their head, agreeing with absolutely everything that we say. And then it's like, so do you want to invest $20 million into this fund? And it's like, nah, I don't know. And then they just kind of disappear. And that happens all the time over and over again. And it's just like, it's very tough to convert this into action. But the zeitgeist is definitely changing, especially with what we've just collectively gone through in the last year with this real, I think everybody got pretty drunk in the startup space and now we're in the hangover period. And there's a lot of a lot of realizations like, oh, you know, it is actually nice when your company makes more money than it spends and it doesn't have to go and raise money every six to 12 months. And all that sort of stuff is definitely coming back to the forefront of people's minds. But it is still difficult to translate that into the kind of action that I think we need to see. And certainly like we're a long, long way off of the scale of the opportunity here to to fund what I think is tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of calm companies a year should probably be getting financing of the kind that we're providing. So are you targeting a mix of institutional LPs and just kind of with individuals? Right now, we've raised almost all of our capital from high net worth individuals or single family offices, right? So a group of people managing one person's money. Um, and the main reason is just they're making decisions on behalf of their own money. And so that works for us, right? That's that's typically the food chain, right? When you're doing something new, you, you just have to convince one person. You don't have to convince someone to convince a committee to convince and all that sort of stuff. So it's a normal process to start there and, and then start to slowly move up the ladder a little bit. So we probably like just this year started having serious conversations with institutional LPs, your foundation your fund of funds, your endowments, these type of folks. But it's kind of like wading through molasses, essentially. Like it's just a slow grinding process. I imagine there's a thesis embedded here. I mean, it, it is what we've been talking about, but even framing it as sort of like a, an essential kickstart to, I mean, this is going to sound grandiose, but to me, this is the essence of American revitalization, like economic totally. revitalization. And so there's yeah. something there that has both upside for investors, but also is crucial for the economy. I agree. I mean, I think if you flip it around, you maybe make us a little less grandiose by just talking about the problem, right? Which is just, I think it's a huge, almost invisible problem, but it's not invisible, actually. Like there's a number of stories and charts that show like it's very hard to measure entrepreneurship, but kind of any way you slice it, you see this pretty steady decline in entrepreneurship in the U.S. in terms of new business starts, in terms of new small businesses that reach a certain level of threshold of income, that sort of stuff. You look at any way you kind of graph that and you're like, whoa, we're, we're really headed in the wrong direction here. What's going on? And I think there's a bunch of different things, some of which may be data artifacts, but I do think this plays a big role in it. I mean, this is where the opportunity is. More and more of the economy fits this kind of asset light, software enabled, internet first. You know, e even if you're just talking about like Etsy shops or, you know, D2C e-commerce, there doesn't have any software, but it's often, you know, when you really boil it down to it, can you get a loan from a bank? For more and more and more of the opportunities in the economy, the answer is no. And that just gets so hard. And I really think there's this invisible drag on entrepreneurship in the U.S. that is a humongous problem. And to me, we are basically mission driven, right? I think our mission is to create the maximum number of successful internet-based entrepreneurs that we possibly can, not necessarily to find the handful of outlier mega successes, but to get as many people as possible to that level of success. And I think it's important. Yeah. Some of the stats around entrepreneurship are so interesting. To your point, mm. it's very hard to measure, but I remember hey. years ago, because I was so focused on female entrepreneurs, bootstrapped and potentially those who had raised, I was looking into some of this data. And one framework I found that was so helpful was breaking down sort of, I think they were calling it necessity-based entrepreneurship. Mm. Um, basically, there were a few categories, but the two that stood out to me were creating something because you feel excited and passionate. And they don't have to be mutually exclusive, obviously, but another main driver being, oh, I, I kind of need the flexibility. I kind of need the side income. 
And mm-hmm. as our economy kind of starts to contract or slow down, you know, with inflation and whatnot, I imagine that that second category is going to be a bigger part of things. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not the right person to like start a nonprofit here and start to try and fundraise around like the actual mission for this. But I think it's a valid point, right? Personally, I believe that entrepreneurship is like an inherent social good. I think there's a lot of primary and secondary benefits to society of having successful entrepreneurs. And so I would like to see more of that. And I would like to see it be just a little easier. You know, there's this sort of mentality that being an entrepreneur has to be like you're getting punched in the face every single day, sort of grind. And I mean, it's never going to be easy, right? It shouldn't be easy. It is this act of creativity and perseverance, but it can be a little less hard. I think that's okay. And it's worth aspiring to, to just say, yeah, you don't have to like mortgage your house or put your family's health at risk to start a business. Be nice, at least. I mean, it seems like you guys have a lot of things in your ecosystem forming this platform. So I can see potentially there being like a calm foundation five years from now or something. If you did do something like that to tackle some of these more high level problems, what would you guys do? Oh, man. Well, so the first step would be if there's ever going to be a calm foundation, it needs someone amazing to run it. So if you're that person and you're seeing this, please reach out to me. I am not the person to run that. I've dipped my toes into the nonprofit world a little bit and I realized there's some good to be done and and I'm not the one to do it. But yeah, no, I mean, you're totally right. There's such a litany of problems that when I think about like the opportunity that we're addressing, it really just boils down to just listening to modern entrepreneurs and trying to build what they need, right? One of my other bailiwicks is that it's incredibly hard for entrepreneurs to, to get a mortgage for a house, right? I mean, the amount of people that I know, and, and my, I personally have experienced this where you go to apply for a mortgage and like you're an exited entrepreneur. You can go to the bank and say like, I can show you the checking account. I can pay cash for this house. Will you please give me a mortgage? Cause it's like tax efficient, you know, and a better use of capital. And they'll be like, no. We can only underwrite against your like W-2 income sort of thing. And then now you think about being a pre-exit entrepreneur. It's just impossible. It's legally impossible to get, you know, so that's one of the things that we've got in the background. If we had sort of infinite resources and infinite time, we would be just like tackling these one after another because I don't know, entrepreneurs are just this, um, I think they need better representation as a constituency, right? (laughs) Like they just always get overlooked. So yeah, there's a long list of things that that I would try to tackle for them for sure. And we need more nuanced, I think, taxonomy of entrepreneurs. So not everybody Mm -hmm. is looking to Elon Musk as the blueprint, right? Basically. This is, I would say the main problem, it's not anyone's fault, is that I am actually a very big fan of the venture capital model and Silicon Valley and venture backed startups. I think like some of the most amazing stuff has been created by that ecosystem. I don't want to see it diminished at all. But something happened sort of around the sort of internet era, the sort of early 2000s, where it just completely dominated the entire concept of entrepreneurship in the the general zeitgeist in the mind of folks. And it's like, okay, it is still like the 0.01% of businesses out there, right, is really the extreme minority of what we consider like entrepreneurs or startups or new businesses. And it should be kind of treated as such. And so to this exact point, right, if you are a venture back startup, and you have, you know, some of the like tier one name brand uh, VCs that have backed your company, there are banks that will help you get a mortgage. And it's like a non issue for, for these folks, <laughs> you know, so if you're ever featured in TechCrunch or whatever, like you're going to be fine. But then actually 99.999% of entrepreneurs is still, a, you know, a horrible problem for them. It just doesn't get any airtime. And so, yeah, I I often come across as sort of criticizing VC, which is not my intent. My intent is to just to sort of tip the scales a little bit, right? Which is say like, hey, this is all good, but we've really over-focused way too much on this narrow version of entrepreneurship. And we really also should be paying attention to the vast majority, you know, the sort of iceberg below the water of entrepreneurs and, and opportunities. Yeah. I mean, I have always seen you as somebody who is just 
trying to right-size the conversation around the venture path, I do think there are people who sort of blindly reject venture capital, which I think is wrong-headed because Mm. it is the right vehicle of financing for a certain kind of company. If you want to build the next Uber, you do need that scale of capital and you do need that model for everybody else. We need other solutions. To go back to your process of raising funds. So you guys are on fund for Mm-hmm. When you're a fund manager, you're kind of in some ways analogous to a founder because you're selling a vision, you're telling a story, you're pitching investors and asking mm-hmm. them to invest in your thing. How has your pitch evolved? What has you found resonates with LPs? Yeah. The thing that we have learned, I don't know how many people in the audience are going to be wanting to raise a fund, but the most important thing that I have learned about pitching is to be boring. Basically, you come with this new idea and you think the amount of people that are going to raise their first fund, me included, who say like, we are inventing a new asset class. This is the coolest new thing. You've never even heard of this. Nobody is doing this. You really want to like emphasize like how innovative and creative and cool and never tried before your approaches because you think like, you know, finance is kind of commoditized, like you're just writing checks, like that's what you need to do, right? You need to go carve out your own niche to do something new. Otherwise, what are you doing? And that is the literal opposite of what works for fundraising. You want to actually like make what you are doing as fundamentally analogous to something they are already doing, but with the slightest possible interesting tweak, right? You know how like the joke of everybody in startups for a long time was raising like Uber for X, right? And it was just terrible. Like everyone was like, God, please stop pitching the Uber for X. It's actually for funds, that's exactly what you want to do. You want to be like Uber for X, right? You want to be exactly like something that they already know and love, but with just the most interesting little tweak to sort of try and get them on board. And that's something we had to really learn the hard way. So we started off with this fundamentally new way to build like bootstrap businesses, nobody's financing, blah, blah, blah. And then we basically have sort of changed that completely in a way that resonates a lot more, especially with the the larger investors, which is, hey, you already know this universe, right? If you are backing like private equity, they're buying these niche vertical software businesses you know, that are doing 10, 20, 30 million dollars a year in revenue in some crunchy vertical part of the travel industry or the chemical engineering industry or whatever. You already see that's a great business. Let's follow that business back through its life cycle. And what you find is just almost all those businesses got bootstrapped right? Because there was no actual institutional investors investing at the early part of that life cycle. From the beginning, they were never a Silicon Valley venture back startup, right? It was some some dude who worked in the chemical industry who had an exit in the chemical industry. And then he and his buddies went and started software for the chemical industry. And then, you know, lo and behold, you know, 15 years later, it's this, you know, $100 million company. That's what we sort of said is, hey, it's the same kind of companies. We're just investing earlier on in the life cycle. And we are the only people doing it in a professional way rather than just bootstraps folks finding seeing it themselves or, you know, local angels or that sort of thing. So that's been like the biggest lesson learned is it should be boring. I actually think a lot of people, a lot more people are curious about potentially starting a fund or at the very least how it works. You know what I mean? I, I mean, that's why I grew on TikTok and now I create content around a lot of this is I think there are, are a lot of people who maybe are not necessarily planning on doing some of these things, but they just want to know how it works. So yeah, good news is it's a lot easier than it was even like five years ago. Where we had very, very good timing where right as we were starting, a bunch of tools kind of came out that sort of democratized it. I mean, in no small part, the changes that allow me to talk about this right now it used to be it was like five years ago, you literally could not talk about the fact that you were raising a fund, which is insane. You couldn't tweet about it. You couldn't say anything publicly. You had to quietly go into these meetings and you had to like, right as we were raising our first fund, 
fun. It was that was when the switchover happened. And I had to like sort of do these bank shot things on Twitter where I would be like, we might be thinking about doing investing in this space. <laughs> if that's something that interests you, sign up for our mailing list, you know, and then we would like be like, hey, we're raising a fund. It was very, very stupid. And, you know, if you have a huge audience, but you don't have direct relationships with a bunch of very rich people, you just couldn't raise a fund. And now you can. Right. So it's actually like a really cool time to, to want to start that sort of stuff. Yeah. When you say tools, you mean mostly these kinds of changes in SEC regulations? Yeah. And then just what followed was folks like AngelList and then a bunch of other companies have sort of followed suit as well. So once it became possible for individuals to leverage their audience to raise these sort of small funds, you saw the the infrastructure also follow suit, right? So law firms used to have like a ridiculously high standard flat fee for fund formation, right? And now they kind of recognize like, oh yeah, if you're going and raising a $5 million fund, they can't charge you, you know, $200,000 to form your fund, right? So they've adapted, right? And then the tools have adapted and the back office folks have adapted. So basically all of the stuff has, has formed around this idea that mostly individuals can launch um, relatively small funds. They can launch them quickly from a public audience. And then they want to make sure that they're there to provide all the rest of the back office and infrastructure for that. So when it comes to this infrastructure, are there any tools or services you would like to see as far as a request for startups or a request for any kind of changes that you think would be beneficial to progress this trend further? Oh, man, I don't think I would request that any entrepreneur try and build stuff for funds. We are a terrible customer base. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty tough. I actually think that the the infrastructure for funds is relatively good. Every now and then, this is so boring, but like it's very hard to pay out funds to. So we have like a lot of LPs. We have like maybe 200 investors in our funds. And so we'll get these quarterly payments. We need to make small payments back to them. And a lot of that infrastructure still runs via wire transfer, which is kind of crazy. And so I think this is about to be solved. So I don't want to kind of put it out there as like an opportunity to pounce on, but that would maybe be it. But no, honestly, the tools are pretty good. You know, you do kind of maybe need someone to traffic cop you to the right folks to talk to, but it's not that hard. I think it's changed pretty dramatically in the last couple of years to be able to start a fund. And honestly, like Angelus is great, especially for like a first fund. If you just don't want to think about it, just want to get on there and, and launch a fund, you know, Angelus works really well. If you start getting creative, you you have to kind of start working with a couple other folks. Like for example, with our shared earnings agreement, it doesn't work on AngelList. They, they kind of don't support that. So sometimes you do have to keep getting creative, but the basic toolkit is, is pretty good. What I like about your thinking and your writing is that you contextualize a lot of these discussions in broader trends, which has been a big part of this conversation so far. Mm. One thing that you talk about is the deployment phase of the S-curve as it relates to some of the sectors that you invest in. Can you talk more about that? Sure. Yeah. The very brief version of it is the foundation of our thesis and why we think there's so much opportunity out there that fits this model is this concept of like the technology S-curve, right? Where, you know, initially it's kind of slowly getting adopted. Then there's this very steep kind of phase that, that there's an economist called Carlotta Perez that a lot of folks in the industry kind of cite some of her work as a seminal kind of analysis on, on the adoption of technology. And so there's this thing called the installation phase, which is basically like the bubble, right? So it's just like everything goes crazy. Everybody's adopting stuff. There's money being thrown everywhere. And the net result is there's some huge winners. There's a lot of losers, but we get the adoption of the technology, which is the important part. And you see this going all the way back. You know, if you look through history, everything from telecoms to, you know, trains, infrastructure, all that sort of stuff, like there was just a lot of spectacular blowups and failures. But then you get on the other side of that phase and the technology is, is there. It's done. It works, right? You know, we have the 3G infrastructure. We have the railroad actually laid on the ground, right? It's there. We can use it now. And then you enter the next phase, which is called the deployment phase. 
which is where you are just taking the fruits of those technologies and now starting to poke it into every single niche in the economy, right? You think about like the telecoms infrastructure at first, it was like trying to go after like all the big enterprises and the hedge funds trying to get an edge on being able to trade faster and stuff like that. Then eventually it's like, okay, your mom and pop shop now finally gets voicemail or finally gets email or whatever, right? And that's the phase where there is still a ton of opportunity, but it's a different category of opportunity, right? It's less of this humongous risk, but if you're right, it's a winner take all market because you're first to get there and more of a, hey, there's a lot of opportunity here and we just need to execute. It's lower risk, lower return, but still a great opportunity if we do it right. And I basically argue that we are going through that phase in the entire concept of software, right? So the installation phase was when there were these green field opportunities. So you think about like Salesforce, you know, kind of taking the winner take all market of the like dominant CRM, right? You think about Shopify taking a huge chunk of the market of e-commerce, right? Those opportunities are not there anymore, right? There is no greenfield opportunity in CRMs. You, you can attack Salesforce, you can nibble around the margin and stuff like that, but there's no winner take all. I can now conquer the CRM space, right? It's done. Somebody's already there. And so that just kind of leads you to a different set of strategies, right? It doesn't now make sense to go and raise a ton of venture capital to try and take down CRMs because it's not going to be a winner take all, right? So you're just never going to get that kind of outcome unless there's a fundamental paradigm shift and we start on a new S-curve, right? So th that's kind of where we, I argue that we're in, in the software market is we're in this sort of deployment phase. We have a lot of these things that have made the process of building a software company much lower risk, much cheaper, much faster. And the opportunity is in taking those fruits and finding the, the version of the mom and pop sort of store but it's much more like niches, right? So it's parts of the, I call it looking for like the sticky notes in Excel spreadsheets, right? So you look at these industries that are still using sticky notes and spreadsheets and trying to build really custom software for them. And then can you just run through that whole industry and get everybody on board? Because it's kind of too small for either Microsoft or big VCs to come after that opportunity. For somebody who wants to build in this space, how mm. would you advise they evaluate opportunities and iterate quickly until they find something where there is a true business there? And I, I've read your framework of putting ideas through the meat grinder, and I really like yeah. that. Also, love for you to touch on that. To get my opinion on how to answer this question, we published our investment questions that we use for, for evaluating whether or not we want to invest in a company. Now, it's not exactly the same thing of whether or not we want to invest or a good opportunity for you, but it's a pretty good approximation. And so there's a whole kind of checklist of kind of a way to evaluate market size, right? You're looking for kind of a Goldilocks market where it's, you know, not too big and not too small, kind of like just the right size. We talk about like founder unfair advantages, right? So looking for some way that you're going to either have product unfair advantage. So you're going to have, a, I call it differentiation and distribution. So differentiation is being able to build a better product for some reason. Maybe you more deeply understand this industry like nobody else does. Maybe you worked in it for 10 years, or maybe you just have a certain skill set that you're bringing and cross-pollinating, right? So this is a very an industry that nobody with serious design skills has ever taken seriously. And so you're going to go in there and build like a beautifully designed product for it or distribution, right? Which would be the ability to get that product out there faster. So maybe you have an audience, maybe you just have a, a network within the industry, a podcast, you know, or something like that, right? Like any, all of those things give you a leg up. So there's a kind of like whole checklist that we have for evaluating investments that I think is, again, it's, it's not perfect, but it's, it's a pretty good way to evaluate the opportunities for yourself. The other thing that's not on there that I think is important from the, the meat grinder, maybe the most cited, most important thing is just, do you actually like it? Do you actually like working in the industry? Do you like working with the people who are going to be your customers? This is a 
very often overlooked question. And you'd be surprised how many entrepreneurs they're looking for anything with revenue and they wander their way into this business that they absolutely hate because they just don't like working with the customer base day in and day out. But yeah. What have you yeah. learned since starting Calm about what these entrepreneurs need? What have you learned that you didn't know before when you first started? Hmm. The thing I think that we underestimated at the beginning and have really doubled down on has been in-person community. So I'm a huge proponent of remote work. We are extremely remote first. Our whole team is remote. We invest in entrepreneurs remotely. So our portfolio is remote around the world. Our investor base is remote. So we're just like every way you can slice it. We're this remote entity that lives on the internet. And people ask us, like, where's your company base? It's like online. I don't know. <laughs> but there is a real need to bring communities together and create actual FaceTime. Just basically every remote first company has recognized this and they usually do retreat and stuff like that. I mean, this is pre-COVID and now kind of post-COVID, everybody's having to figure it out. But that's something that we did not expect to need to do. But we just sort of on a whim decided, let's throw a little summit. And we were started off with the idea of bringing together some of our portfolio and some of our investors. I was living in Mexico City at the time. So we said, hey, well, let's bring some people together. And we got a huge reaction from it. And also just as I was talking about it, a bunch of other people who didn't have a business relationship with us in some formal way, but also loved the idea of building a calm company, thought they were building one to wanted to come too. So we said, okay, all right, uh, let's just turn this into like a little conference. We'll sell some tickets and we'll bring folks together. And our first one got a little bit disrupted by COVID. It was supposed to be in March 2020 was uh, the very first one. So that got delayed. Uh, it was a very exciting experience. Um, we actually had a good number of people show up. We had to cancel the thing like three days before it was scheduled because it was like right when COVID went sort of asymptotic around the world. It was kind of crazy. But since then, we've done two of them. We've done another one in Mexico City and we did one in North Carolina. And we're doing now three this year. And the big lesson learned is just entrepreneurship is a, it's kind of lonely, to be honest. And most people, especially now that a lot of us are working remotely, a lot of people are out of big cities, they've sort of moved places. They don't have the people that they can really empathize with and lean on when, when times are tough. And it's hard to form that level of relationship over the internet. You really do need some kind of FaceTime with people before you can feel comfortable calling them up and saying like, oh, wow, I'm going through some really tough stuff. I'm going to have to lay off, you know, a big chunk of this team. I feel terrible about it or I have to give some tough news to my investors or whatever. It's difficult to build that tribe just on the internet. And so we've structured these summits that we started doing around not really so much like let's all sit and look at somebody giving a keynote presentation. Basically, it's like everybody comes here and we're going to try and create as much space as possible for you to just make friends with other founders. So we do a bunch of like activities and all kinds of stuff like that. And they've gone really, really well. We didn't expect to be an events company, but now we're doing three. This year, I expect we'll do more next year because there's just a real need from entrepreneurs to to get those opportunities to create those bonds with their peers. And it's also really fun. Yeah, I didn't expect to enjoy it as much as I did, too. <laughs> I've had yeah. a similar conclusion when I was running a community and I started organizing offline events. And before they came together, they would be so stressful. And I mm. never thought of myself as a good community builder. I just wanted mm -hmm. these people, these women especially, to come together. But then afterwards, every single time it felt so worth it. And you just walk away like feeling a type of way that you can't, to your point, from Slack DMs. You know, it's yep. just completely different. And I was on this podcast called E-Commerce Fuel. Mm -hmm. He was saying events are a terrible, terrible business. Nobody yeah. should build a business around events, but events can be the thing that cultivates community. And obviously that amplifies everything else. So absolutely. Yeah. The good news is they're really fun, right? They're a huge pain in the butt and they're not that profitable, but they are really fun. So. <laughs>
Exactly. Yeah, that's awesome. So as we start to wrap up, I have two more questions. One is based on one of your recent tweets slash articles. It's about AI, which is the thing <laughs> that everybody is talking. It's the new crypto. So AI is a boon for, you said something like, I forget the exact, but you know what I'm referencing, right? So yeah. the dad for venture, it's a boon for Kong. Unpack that for us and tell us what you're observing about the space. Sure. Yeah. You'll be surprised to learn that my reaction to each new shiny object, you know, in tech is uh, everybody chill out. Let's stay calm, you know, <laughs> but uh, that's kind of my my MO. But no, I mean, I think I do feel like I have to pay attention to these new platform kind of waves as they come because, you know, I need to be making a decision for, for our investors on whether or not we need to be aggressively getting involved in the space. So I do the same thing with crypto. I do the same thing with everything. Like I try to keep an open mind and try to see, okay, what is this actually? And the thing I sort of observed after looking at a, a bunch of different, I would say like AI first startups, right? So there's a lot, there's a huge wave right now and a ton of venture capital going into folks building these things where the use of AI is kind of the main value being provided, right? So it's a writing assistant powered by AI or a customer service uh, support ticket software powered by AI, that sort of thing. You know, I honestly just think if you look at it from a strategic perspective, this is not a very good fit for the venture model, right? Again, like the venture model, I try to point out when it's being misapplied. <laughs> and I think this is one of those cases where the big problem is just that a lot of these startups, you know, if you really like open the hood and look at it, they are really just making an API call to GPT-3 or, you know, some of these other large platforms. And the large platforms are genuine venture scale, you know, massive breakthrough technologies, but in a way that's fundamentally different from when I build a Web 2.0 SaaS, and yes, I'm reliant on AWS to sort of provide servers and stuff like that. But most of the value is coming in the application layer that I've created, right? AWS is just doing really dumb stuff, you know, just like moving packets around. That's all the UX and stuff that I've created that creates most of the value. When you open up the hood on a lot of these things, most of the value is in the platform layer, right? It's just a little layer that makes it slightly more palatable and easier to send information back and forth to, let's say, OpenAI to get the results back. But most of the value is going in to the platform layer. And so I don't really see how you can build a sort of billion dollar company on the back of that, right? It feels like you're going to get squeezed. The platform is just going to get better and better and better. So they're going to be able to charge as much as they possibly want, right? And so eventually they can eat up all your margin or you're going to have infinite competition because it's hard to build a moat, right? When all you're mostly doing is just doing API calls to the same API that's open to anybody else. You're going to have hundreds of competitors really fast and you just kind of get squeezed in the middle. So in the one respect, I think like a lot of these things are not an opportunity for for venture back success. So I'm not that bullish on it. And I try to just call this stuff out, not because I care if VCs lose money, but I just I'm speaking to founders, right? I'm just saying like, hey, you know, here's my opinion on whether or not you should go after this opportunity in this kind of way. The second piece that I think is really interesting is also related to AI, which is a specific subset of that, which is AI assisted software development. It is crazy when you speak to developers now and when you see the examples of just how much AI-assisted software development is helping their day-to-day -day and how much more efficient they are. It's pretty wild. And it is already fantastic. There's a, a lot of these AI things you kind of have to extrapolate. Like, this is neat now, but it really has to get much better before it's really going to change my day-to-day. -day. With software development, it is already making their day-to-day -day much more efficient and effective. And that becomes really cool because if you can then have a really small team of developers that are incredibly effective and incredibly high leverage, you can start to go after a lot of really interesting, big opportunities. So you don't need to go after and say, like, we're going to build an AI first CRM where AI is the main value. 
you can say, we're going to build a small team that's going to leverage AI-assisted software development to go directly after, let's say, Salesforce. And we're going to build something that's better and it's like a tenth the cost. And the reason we a tenth the cost is because we don't have, you know, whatever it is, 200,000 engineers on the payroll. We have 10 people. We're going to build something that is equally as good, right? And that's, I think, becoming pretty possible. And so I wanted to kind of encourage folks to think about that and to think about, okay, can I build like a calm company, right? Can I build a small team and raise not very much capital and start to go after some pretty big opportunities because we can now build software and design and do all those things so much more effectively because of leveraging AI internally, not necessarily pushing it forward as our as our feature. So I think that's pretty interesting dynamic going on right now. It's gonna be fun to see how that plays out. I'm sold. I mean, I'm excited <laughs> the way you just presented all of that. What is next for Kong? Whoa. I mean, we're entering the second phase of our business. The first phase of the business was proving the thesis made sense. So when we first started, I mean, you would not believe how many people were just like, this makes no sense, right? Investing in entrepreneurs is incredibly risky. You're going to have a super high failure rate. Every, you know, you're going to have 70% of the portfolio is going to fail. The only way you can make any money investing in early stage entrepreneurs is the traditional angel venture approach of you have to have this huge outlier on the other end because you have so much failure on this side. And there's no way to kind of calibrate that in the middle really smart people were like, this is a law of physics. And so I was like, okay, right, maybe they're right. Um, we need to prove that. And so that was the first phase of the business. And we're now, I think, on the other side of that, where, you know, we have done enough investments, we have enough of a track record in our portfolio that it's pretty clear. It's not definitive because it takes a long time, but it's pretty clear that we're right about that, that this is a different way to invest in early stage companies, generate attractive returns, be able to kind of bring capital back to investors, redeploy it, do the whole life cycle of stuff and stay in business off of this different strategy. And so now it's about scaling it up, right? That's that's what's next for us is it's a lot of like beat the drum, figure out how to do 10 times more of what we did and build the systems to scale. So we're spending a lot of time now thinking about okay, what happens to our community and mentorship when we have 10 times more companies? And how do we make sure that that stays awesome, even as it becomes slightly less intimate, right? That sort of stuff. So that's what's on my mind right now is just, you know, building to, to really scale up. Yeah. Yeah, that's super exciting. Yeah. Well, I am excited to see all of it because I, I really love what you guys are doing. And obviously I believe in the vision. So very excited to stay updated on all of that. And then where can people find you on the internet? Best place is to find me on Twitter. So I'm at Tyler Tringus. And then I'm Tyler at calmfund.com, C-A-L-M-F-U-N-D. And then on our website, calmfund.com, we've got tons of information, more than you could probably ever want to read. That's where you can find me. Awesome. This has been great. Thank you, Tyler. Yeah, thanks so much.